Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. This week we talk Earth and sky, from the mysteries of earthquakes to our favorite star, the sun. Our sun dictates many facets of our lives, not just on our planet, but for all the tech orbiting our Earth, as well as launches to come. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez has the story. The forecast calls for solar activity to ramp up and cause extreme space weather. So what does this mean for current and future missions, and what about us here on Earth? Coming up, we explore this in full detail with Sun expert Dr. Alex Young, Associate Director for Science in the Heliophysics Division at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Plus, did you know the equipment used to determine where an earthquake happened and its strength was developed during the Cold War? Actually, that network was set up to detect underground nuclear tests in the Cold War. But fortunately, we detected more earthquakes than we did underground tests. I chat with Professor Grenville Draper from FIU to talk about Haiti earthquakes, Puerto Rico tremors, and the possibility of a tsunami ever striking South Florida. That's all next on Weather or Not. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. The sun is our closest star. We think of it as a stable force in our lives. It sets and rises every day, and we don't think about it. But our sun has its mood swings, and it can affect us. Vivian Gonzalez digs in. So today the star of the show is the sun. And did you know that the sun goes through cycles and a new one is about to start? So here to tell us more about this and what it means for us, we bring in Dr. Alex Young, Associate Director for Science in the Heliophysics Science Division at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. It's an honor to have you contribute to our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right, so now let's explore more about the sun. What is the sun's impact in the planetary system? Well, you know, we think mostly about the sun in terms of its impact on us. Of course, it is the source of heat and light, and it is uh, essential for our life. But it is um, the driving force for the whole solar system. I mean, one might even say it's the beating heart of the solar system. Not only does it have majority of the stuff, uh, more than 99% of all that's in the solar system come is the sun. That means it also has most of the gravity. So all the planets orbit around it, it's driven by that. But then the sun is putting out all this energy and light, not just at earth, but also to the rest of the bodies in the solar system. And it's constantly spitting out stuff huge blobs of material and electromagnetic fields, as well as bursts of light over the whole electromagnetic spectrum. And all of this stuff creates this crazy environment that interacts with everything in the solar system. And we call that space weather. 
And we recently had the summer solstice start and summertime for us means warmer weather. And I know here in South Florida, we get it practically all year round, but <laughs> <laughs> does the sun also have seasons? The sun does have seasons. And so, you know, on earth, we have seasons based on where the earth is in its orbit around the sun. And that's a, a, a one-year season, a one-year cycle through all the four seasons. The sun has a much longer cycle. And this cycle we call the solar cycle, or often referred to as the sunspot cycle, goes from very low activity, very low or no sunspots, to high, back down to low. And that up and back down lasts roughly 11 years. So, so the, the sun cycle is uh, more than uh, 10 times to so 11 times what we experience here in our normal cycle of seasons. And how does all of this solar activity affect us here on earth? And is there really anything we have to worry about? Well, it doesn't. Uh, so that's a great question because, um, all of this stuff that's coming off the sun uh, has an impact on the earth. Now, fortunately for us, we sit down uh, on the surface and overhead is a relatively thick atmosphere. Um, and that protects us from high energy particles, from the spectrum of light that's uh, harmful to us, things like the stream ultraviolet, um, X-rays and gamma rays. So we personally are protected from all these things that come uh, from the sun. And the sun, the earth itself has a magnetic field, much like the bar magnet or, you know, a magnet you stick to a refrigerator. The sun, the earth has one that also protects us from some of this material and, and particles. But our technology is susceptible um, because all of the material um, is electromagnetic in nature, it interacts with the Earth's magnetic field and it, it kind of jiggles it. It, 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 it jostles the magnetic field and that creates electrical currents in the upper atmosphere. Now we see the direct effect of that. If you happen to be at higher latitudes, um, let's say in northern U.S. or Canada or near the, the uh, north or south pole, you would see the aurora. So that is a direct result of that, which is gorgeous. Um, when the storms are strong enough, those electrical currents can, can actually impact us through the power grids. They can cause um, power outages, shorts in the power grid. And all of that energy and material disturbs the outer part of the atmosphere, what's called the ionosphere. This is the farthest <laughs> most part of the atmosphere that, that is kind of our interface to space. Mm -hmm. And that can disrupt communication. So that disrupts our ability to use things like GPS. It disrupts certain types of radio frequencies like shortwave radio. These are very important uh, for communicating around the earth. It disrupts communication systems that impact navigation for ships for airplanes, um, and all of this stuff can uh, damage or uh, affect satellites, spacecraft, the things that you and I, for example, are very dependent upon. You and I look at data. You look at data for weather, what's happening on Earth. I'm looking at data, also what's happening in space. And all of those spacecraft that are giving us that data can be impacted by all of this phenomena that the sun is spitting out. 
And then lastly, uh, you know, we're protected on Earth, but if you're an astronaut, if you're outside of the atmosphere, or if you're even farther away outside of the magnetic field, let's say you're going to the moon or someday to Mars, then you're very exposed to all of this high energy radiation. And that is a very different situation. And so we have to do something similar to what you do as a meteorologist, being able to predict the weather, to tell people what's happening, what's gonna come so we can prepare for it. We're doing something similar in space. We're trying to predict what's gonna happen on the sun to know what kinds of things it's throwing at us to understand what that impact will be. But then we can also make preparations and prepare for what's coming. And what crafts missions do we currently have out there studying the sun? Well, we have a whole bunch of them because space is so big. The solar system is so big. We have to look at lots of different things. We have to look at the space around the earth. We have to look at the space in between the earth and the sun and then the sun itself. So we have a fleet of more than 19 different spacecraft that are looking at looking back down on the earth to see the impact. We have spacecraft that are um, studying the, the, all the stuff as it's moving in between um, as well as what's happening at the sun. And so right now we have some very exciting new spacecraft, relatively new. We have a couple, for example, called Icon or, and Gold, which are looking at that part of the atmosphere, the ionosphere, which is so critical for our technology. And we're, we have spacecraft like Parker Solar Probe, which in fact is going to the sun. And it is going up close and personal, flying through the sun's outer atmosphere. And it is both measuring material as it's passing through. It's taking some photos of the side views to see what's coming off of the sun. And this is a, this is a, a real game changer. I mean, this is something scientists have wanted to do for for years, but now we're able to do this in a unique way. I kind of uh, think about it, you know, when you uh, use the use data, some of the different types of data that are important, you have uh, spacecraft or satellites that are giving us these global views, let's say of a hurricane, but then you also have aircraft, which are flying through a hurricane and mm -hmm. making up close and direct measurements. And that is what something like Solar, Parker Solar Probe is doing. And that is a really different thing. We've been looking at the sun with incredible detail to see what's going on. But now we're actually going to where the action is so that we can make the kinds of measurements that we, we in the past would not have uh, available to us. So the next cycle is going to happen uh, around July 2025. Uh, that's the next solar maximum, and it's likely to bring extreme space weather. So what happens if those crafts get hit by extreme solar weather? Well, that, so that's a, that's a very important thing. Uh, so you're, you, you are correct. So we're, we're slowly moving up into the peak of solar maximum. We've just come out of what's called solar minimum. We actually uh, number our solar cycles. We're going into what's called solar cycle 25. And as the sun becomes more active, it will start throwing off more radiation, more material. And 
these spacecraft are designed, these particular ones especially, are designed to handle a lot of this harsh environment. That doesn't mean that there won't be things that could in, in, you know, in, impact them and could be detrimental, but ultimately these ones are especially designed to handle that harsh environment because the scientists actually want them to be hit by these solar eruptions because then they have an opportunity to measure these events uh, as they're passing by them, which is, again, this is a unique measurement. So this is like being able to fly into a hurricane. So now we are flying into these hurricanes in space, and we're hoping that more of that happens because the more it happens, the more data that we gather. And we do always run the risk that something could go wrong because of these space weather events. But we're hoping the engineering is extremely uh, uh, well thought out. The engineers have done an amazing job. And we're hoping that we're just gonna be bringing back lots of fantastic data so we can really start to understand the fundamental physics, the fundamental science of, of what's happening inside these solar eruptions. Okay, so I've been curious about two things, and I want to get your more insight, especially from you. You're the expert. So most star systems that have been discovered are binary, which means that there are two stars orbiting around each other, and we're like the oddball. Is there any truth that we have a sister sun that has a really long-range orbit, and it's named Nemesis? <laughs> um <laughs> As that's a that's a something people have thought about for a while. There, you know, there's Nemesis. There's even things kind of in line with that. You know, about uh, ex, you know planets that might be like that. As far as we know, um, we have not seen any indication of that. Now, one of the things about you know you've you, you may have heard about some of these you know planet X's or you know extra mm -hmm. planets. Planets are harder to see because planets are seen by the light that's reflected off of them. Now, stars are a different story because, you know, normal stars will produce light. And so that makes them much easier to see. It still could be, a, you know, it could, it, there could be some reason why we might not see one. But at this point, we don't really have any indication of that. We do look for a lot of the indirect, you know, impacts. We look for gravitational perturbations. And if there is something that's in the system, even if it's far outside of the system, it could potentially have some effect that we might measure. Um, so right now, we, we don't have any really strong evidence to, to support that idea. Okay. And the second thing, astronomers have discovered a, a comet so big that it could actually be a minor planet. And this object's named 2014 UN271. And Unfortunately, it's falling toward the sun and we may never be able to see it with our own eyes. Could the telescope that captures images of the sun at different wavelengths get a glimpse of this comet? Um, they can. And in fact, we've done that before with much smaller comets. Um, the, uh, the SOHO spacecraft has seen uh, comets fall into the sun and actually sees them quite regularly. In fact, um, amateur astronomers have been the ones to find most of those. And we've seen, I believe, more than 4,000 more comets than, um, than in any other way because of that. And then also there was a comet uh, Lovejoy and a comet Icon, which were 
seen by the SOHO spacecraft, uh, sorry, um, uh, the SDO, the Solar Dynamics Observatory spacecraft. Um, and we saw the Lovejoy comet actually go around the sun. We thought that it wouldn't make it, and it in fact did. And then the comet Icon that, um, that reached the close to the sun burned up and, uh, and went away. So that means that these were relatively small comets. That means that there's a really good chance that um, if it gets close enough, in goes into the solar corona, its outer atmosphere, that we might in fact get a you know, pretty exciting view with those um, solar viewing spacecraft. And how does studying our sun help us better understand other stars in the universe? Well, the sun, you know, it's the only star that's close to us, the only star we see in, in incredible detail. And it's, it's our own star. It's your star. It's my star. And that's pretty exciting. But what that means for scientists is it's a laboratory. Um, all the other stars that we see are points in the sky, and we can measure different types of light that comes from them. We can see things about their motions to tell us what's going on. But we really can't image them and see details, see the different layers of their atmosphere uh, even see things like comets fall into them or the solar eruptions, uh, coronal eruptions that come off of them. We cannot see that. So our sun provides a, an amazing laboratory, which allows us to see a lot of this fundamental astrophysics. We take that information and then we can apply it um, with, the, with the, what we know about those other stars. We can apply all the information we learn about the sun to those other stars. And it just truly uh, broadens and explodes the, the, the understanding we have of extrasolar planets and extrasolar systems. And ultimately, that kind of tells us a lot about, you know, what's the possibility of life on those other planets? Because we know that the sun's activity has a huge impact on both the formation of life on Earth, as well as, you know, being able to sustain life. And that same information applies to all these extrasolar planets that we've found, many thousands of them now. Um, and so it, it's truly a gold mine for us to understand the rest of the universe, what we find out from the sun. I know you have a passion for sharing your knowledge, giving public lectures, television, radio interviews. You've even participated in several Discovery Channel documentaries. Like I've told you, um, we've seen Mission to, to the Sun in, in my household, and I've watched it with my daughter, and she was glued to the screen. She's only four and a half years old, <laughs> and she was asking all sorts of questions. And now you're contributing to our podcast. So where can we learn more? <laughs> well, you know, the, a great place to go, well, one place to find out things that are happening all the time is social media. So if you happen to be on Twitter, you can go to NASA Sun Science, uh, the same on Facebook. Um, and then if you want to really delve deep into it, you can go to nasa.gov and you can look at different sections to find out for example, the solar system and beyond, that'll tell you about what's happening on the sun as well as the other planets and then even the rest of the universe. And then it's also a great place to learn about all the details that NASA is um, studying with the earth, not only weather, but also climate, You know what's happening now as well as what's happening on the long term. So 
it's just tons of great stuff to go to. And I'll actually add one other resource that I that I think is really fun. It's called the SVS, the um, Scientific Visualization Studio. It's a NASA resource that comes out of Goddard Space Flight Center. Okay. You can just Google SVS and NASA, and there are all there are tens of thousands of great visualizations, videos, lots of lots of information on Earth science um, and all aspects of space science. So those are great resources, and you could just spend hours and hours going through all that. We appreciate your time and giving us all of this incredible information. It's really extraordinary that there are missions that are orbiting closer to the sun than ever before. And I really can't wait to hear back on all the findings. So thank you for your time. Well, it's been a real pleasure. And I'm always happy to talk to you about all of this anytime. For the Weather or Not podcast, I'm meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez. Thanks, Vivian. Weather or not, we'll be right back. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the storm station, Seven News. Welcome back. Recently, a magnitude 7.2 earthquake struck Haiti at a depth of about six miles. Tsunami warnings were briefly issued for parts of the Haitian coast. The death toll stands at over 2,000, but the final tally is expected to be much higher. Many buildings have been destroyed. It was just 11 years ago that the nation was hit with another powerful earthquake, with many areas still in ruins from that one. I chatted with Grenville Draper, professor of geology in the Department of Earth and Environment at Florida International University, to help us understand why these tremors happen. We begin with, what is an earthquake? Well, an earthquake is uh, formed by movement on what we call faults, which are planes in the earth that are essentially sliding by each other. So they can be, uh, it can be a side to side kind of motion or it can be up or down. In this particular case of, of Haiti, it was uh, a, a sort of a, a side by side kind of motion. Uh, these faults are held together by friction. And as the stresses build up around them, they'll get to a point where it will slip suddenly. Think of yourself as trying to push a, a heavy packing case across a, a room, across a wooden floor, and you push and push and push, and then suddenly it slips very suddenly. And it's the same kind of phenomenon on a fault. So when we talk about Haiti, and they have been so unfortunate lately getting all these uh, big tremors, uh, what, what plates or boundaries are causing these specific quakes across Haiti? Well, it, it, uh, the thing that moves the plates ultimately is uh, the energy of escaping heat from the earth. Mm. In this particular case, uh, the, plates in, uh, the plates are the North American plate in the north and then the Caribbean plate in the south. Um, but across uh, the Greater Antilles uh, in the region of Hispaniola, it's kind of splintered into, uh, it sort of splits into two sets of faults. Uh, one of which goes uh, to, uh, through northern Hispaniola and to the north, actually, 
uh, offshore, and then the other zone is towards the south. It, uh, and the, the Caribbean plates moving at about 11 millimeters per year eastwards with respect to North America. And, and why are they particularly so strong here across Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico at well, times? Well, uh, well, the ones in Puerto Rico recently weren't that strong, but they were what we call an earthquake swarm. There were a lot of smaller ones. Right. Um, in in the case of in the case of uh, the Haiti, the two Haiti earthquakes, it's because we're just looking through a certain window of time. But uh, if we look at the past motions, there's been a century or two centuries between. Uh, earthquakes of that magnitude. Uh, that's because the large earthquakes uh, occur more infrequently than smaller earthquakes. But the smaller earthquakes have been, or tremors, have been occurring, you know, on a on a pretty much a monthly basis all of the time. But most of those are not felt; they can only be detected by instruments. And earthquakes are not you know, regular; they're random. And we just happen to have, have seen two large sets of movements on that fault relatively close to each other. Um, so, you know, it, it, there is such a thing as coincidence. Uh, similar things happened in 1751, when, uh, which was the time of the previous large earthquake uh, near Port-au-Prince. And then uh, about only about a month later, there was another large earthquake further towards the east on what's now the Dominican side uh, of the island. They just, that's just the way they happen. Now, looking forward to the future, for example, has there, how far along is the science of being able to uh, forecast, uh, maybe not the intensity, but the occurrence of an earthquake? Well, as a weatherman, you would appreciate <laughs> that there's a difference between a forecast and a prediction. Correct. So the science has come along far enough that we can actually use instruments to measure the motion of the blocks of rock either side of a fault. Mm -hmm. And that tells us how much stress is built up and how much uh, potentially there could be released on the fault if it slips. But what we can't do is say exactly when and exactly where uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. So in other words, for the 2010 earthquake, I remember being at a conference where one of my colleagues who had done these measurements says, well, there's the potential for a 7.2, 7.3 earthquake um, at some time in the future. But he said, I don't know whether it's going to be next week or in 20 years time. As it turns out, it was, uh, it was two years later uh, and um, they were pretty close. It was a, mag a magnitude seven. So, now, does the, does the depth of where uh, an earthquake happens, will that dictate how strong or how weak it may be at the surface? Oh, yeah, that, that's a pretty important thing. And in the case of the most recent earthquake, it, it seems to have been very shallow. Um, so the energy, as it radiates away from uh, the center of the earthquake, the, the place where we get the maximum slip on the fault, uh, obviously, the further away it radiates. So if it's very deep, then the energy is weaker. But if that fault is right at the surface, then you're very close to you know the, the source of the energy, and that's where you're going to get the most violent shaking. And I think that was why this one 
if it had been deeper, I think there would have been less damage, but it was, it was very shallow. What about the threat of uh, tsunamis throughout the Caribbean and even for South Florida in case of a, of a large event happening somewhere along the Caribbean or the Atlantic? Well, you'll, if you get motions, uh, if the faults come to the surface of the seafloor, then there's the potential for generating a tsunami. And that's usually less with the side-to-side the -side motions that we have in the northern Caribbean plate boundary. Uh, normally when uh, you get the tsunamis, when you get upward motion mm. on one side of the fault. And that, that is the more potent, there's more potential for that in the lesser Antilles than there is in the greater Antilles. But you can still get some tsunami generated. In 1946, uh, there was an offshore earthquake that generated a tsunami that pretty much wiped out a, a, a fishing village called Nagua. Uh, what's rather frightening is if that was to happen today, Nagua's grown to be a fairly large, populous town. And so the effect would be um, much greater. So yes, there is a potential. Um, probably the potential for reaching Florida is uh, is less because you've got the Bahamas and Turks and Caicos kind of in the way, and that would absorb a lot of tsunami energy. What about the history of earthquakes for Florida? I know that there are very few, but they have happened, right? Yes, but um, uh, they're probably not caused by active faults. Mm. Uh, there is, in fact, there is an earthquake map of Florida. It's got about five earthquake centers on it. <laughs> uh, and uh, some of these might be more generated by, um, uh, by uh, sort of under, underwater landslides uh, off the, uh, uh, in the uh, continental rise, or the continental slope. Now, why are uh, earthquakes so much, or at least uh, in appearance, seem so much stronger out in the Pacific Ocean, uh, California, and even throughout the Ring of Fire? Why are they that much stronger? Well, those, uh, the plate motions in that region uh, are much faster than most of the Caribbean. And so these larger earthquakes occur more frequently. And we also get these up and down, we we'll call them thrust earthquakes, that occur and there's a lot of those uh, uh, convergent plate boundaries as opposed to the side-by-side -side motions that we get in the Caribbean. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a very large area. It's a big plate boundary that, you know, the Pacific is, uh, is bound on Asia on one side and the Americas on the other. So that's a lot of different places yeah. you can build up stresses and generate earthquakes. What instruments uh, do geologists use to uh kind of measure or keep the pulse of what's going on with Mother Nature? Um, well, we, uh, we have a series of, of uh, uh, what we call seismograph stations uh, around the world. And those um, contain instruments called seismometers. And they can measure both north, south, east, west, and up and down um, kinds of, of vibrations. And uh, because we have so many of those now, it's easy to locate an earthquake. And that's been centralized by the USGS uh, who uh, uh, receives all this data. Uh, actually that network was set up to detect underground nuclear tests in the Cold War. But fortunately we detected more earthquakes than we did underground tests. 
um, which meant that, you know, and of course that meant there was lots of uh, defense money to, uh, to establish these stations, but uh, now it's, you know, become an important part of our, of, um, uh, of our observing potential natural disasters. Now you had mentioned uh, that uh, the, uh, the Puerto Rico uh, earthquakes that happened a little while ago was a swarm of, uh, of quakes. Uh, could we uh, expect that now again with uh, Haiti? Are they going to have like more aftershocks? No, I don't think so. The, the, the uh, swarm in Puerto Rico was uh, not really associated with any real known fault. This, is, this one was associated with a very well-defined fault that's been carefully mapped. Although one of my colleagues um, uh, using satellite, a, a special kind of satellite imagery technique, uh, thinks that only a short portion of the fault moved in the last earthquake, which means that other parts of the fault are, are still locked. So there's the potential for another uh, fault slip there. But again, the problem is when, you know, just because it's locked it doesn't mean to say it's going to unlock tomorrow. It could be decades before it does. And, and I want to do one, one final question. Uh, climate change, big issue. Does that have any impact whatsoever on uh, earthquakes? No, none at all. <laughs> oh, that's great. Good to hear. Well, thank you so much for taking part in our humble uh, podcast here. And uh, we've learned a lot from you today. Thank you so much. Uh Okay. Next week on Whether or Not, it's the peak of hurricane season. It's been an active year so far. South Florida has been lucky, but experts warn the second half of the season may be the most active. We'll check in with the National Weather Service for what we might expect. Plus, it's not too late to get what you need and be ready for if and when Mother Nature plays dirty. We all know the worst part of a hurricane strike is not the picking up and fixing up, but dealing with insurance companies. We'll talk to an expert that will guide us through the best practices when it comes to making a hurricane evacuation plan, what types of supplies should be bought in preparation, and what to look for to ensure you're covered by your home insurance and how to prepare your property for floodwaters. That's in our next issue, which drops September 7th. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7weather and of course live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.